Good morning. Good to see you. Glad to be with you. So, last week, we finished chapter 11 of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jared finished the sermon with one of the most quoted, most pillow-embroidered, coffee cup-printed verses of all time. And for good reason. It is a source of a lot of joy and hope for those who follow Christ. So I'd like to start there to remind us of where we left off so that we can continue. So Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, which reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But because of the way that we've broken up our Bible, the way that we've organized our Bible so that we can find things easily with chapters and verses and little headings, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of what the author is trying to tell us, the author of the book, not only the human author, but the divine author, God, speaking through by his spirit through Matthew. So Matthew didn't just give us this encouraging statement here at the end of chapter 11, and now... Let's move on to bigger and better things. This is a connected idea. It's continuing, right? He's now going to give us some kind of practical examples of what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, those who are laboring and heavy laden, as well as a better understanding of this rest that Jesus is offering, this eternal rest that he's offering that we see a picture of in part of the Old Testament law, the Sabbath. So let's pray, and we'll get into the text. Father, we're grateful to you for your love and for your mercy, your mercy that has been extended to your people. It is only by your grace, it is only by your love that we can know you, that you have awakened the hearts of believers to the truth of your word that proclaims the reality of your son. And so as we gather this morning to Consider some of your word, we pray, that you will humble us, that you will help us to see correctly what you are telling us, what your word teaches, and that that understanding, that that improved knowledge of you would lead to an actual love for you, that our hearts would be enlivened with love for this good God who has sent his son. And so we are grateful that we get to gather this way this morning, and we pray that your spirit will strengthen us, encourage us, remind us of how good you are and how merciful you are. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son who has come and made this way possible for us today. We pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Okay, verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So, what do we know about this verse? It's pretty simple. Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields. We don't know why. Were they walking through grain fields because the disciples were hungry? And they're like, Jesus, feeling a little peckish. And, uh, and Jesus is like, well, let's just walk through this field. We don't know. Is it just the fastest way to get to where they're going? We don't know. We don't know why they were in this grain field or what their purposes were that day. But we do know two things. 
We know that the disciples were indeed hungry, Matthew tells us, which seems to then be the motivation for them to pick these heads of grain and to eat them. And we know that it was on the Sabbath that this was taking place, right? Which, of course, is a day of rest for God's people that was commanded by God. But God's command around the Sabbath isn't super specific. God says in Exodus chapter 20, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what exactly constitutes work becomes the question. That was the question for God's people. The Pharisees and the scribes tried to answer that question with a great deal of specificity. But God doesn't give us a lot of specificity here. He just says, do no work. We get little hints here and there. Places like Exodus 16, where God provides manna for six days for the people in the wilderness, but he doesn't provide it on the seventh day. He says, I want you to gather manna for the Sabbath the day before. So get two days worth the day before, and then on the Sabbath you could eat without gathering. So it seems like God is saying, I don't want you preparing food on the Sabbath. Okay? It's important to note that the majority of work that would have been done by anyone, the majority of work was centered on the idea of gathering and preparing food. That was a big deal during this time period. You didn't just run down to Walmart and be like, you got any of that weird grocery store sushi? That didn't happen. And rightly so. Or there's another example we find in Exodus 35 where Moses tells the people they're not supposed to light a fire on the Sabbath, which would have then seemed to have included cooking, preparing food again. So the Sabbath prohibits work, but what exactly constitutes work isn't that perfectly clear. So back to the narrative, right? Here we have Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field. The boys get hungry. They start plucking heads of grain and eating them. Now, for us, in our context today, we would think, hey, 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 that's my field. Out of my field. Right? If you have a garden in your backyard, imagine you do. Some of you don't have to imagine. Like, I'm prepping. I'm prepping, baby. I'm canning vegetables. I'm hiding guns. I'm doing all the stuff. <laughs> but imagine you have a, a, a garden, and in it, you're growing some wheat because you want to make homemade bread from your own homegrown wheat. And somebody wanders through your yard into your backyard and starts plucking heads of grain. You'd be like... Where is my pistol, right? Hey, get out of my yard, fella. That, that would be our response to this. But that's not the way this operates at this time. God has made very specific provision for that being an okay thing, okay? God makes provision for this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23, which says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So he gives his people permission and, in fact, instruction to not only have the freedom to gather grain with your hands, you can't go and reap somebody else's harvest, but you can pick grains to eat. But the, the inverse implication is there as well. If you have a field, you should allow this and not give people a hard time. You might even be intentionally generous in this way. And we see that in the book of Ruth. You got Ruth gleaning from Boaz's field, and he intentionally leaves a bunch of extra for this woman who's destitute and he cares for and wants to help. 
So that's verse one, just setting the scene, right? Jesus, disciples, walking through a field, num, 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 num. Okay, that's verse one. Verse two, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, first of all, where were the Pharisees that they were able to see it? Were they hiding in the field? And they jump out, aha, I gotcha. <laughs> Sabbath, Sabbath alert, right? We don't know, we don't know where, they were, where they were coming from or how they found him, but, they, but it's evident that they were consistently keeping an eye on him, paying attention to what he's doing, where he's going, what he's saying, because they want to catch him. They want to demonstrate that there's something wrong with Jesus, right? And they saw this with their own eyes. They didn't, somebody didn't see the disciples picking grain and then go report to the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw them do it. That's what Matthew tells us, when the Pharisees saw it. Now, what's the rule that they're referring to? Why exactly is it not lawful on the Sabbath? Because the problem isn't the action, the plucking of the grain. We've already seen God explicitly says that's a good thing and okay. It's the timing. It's when it's taking place, being on the Sabbath, right? The Pharisees were contending that what the disciples were doing was work, and that is a violation of the Sabbath. So for the Pharisees, if you were plucking grain, then you're reaping. If you rub that grain between your fingers to separate the grain that you're going to eat from the little husk that's around it, that would be threshing. And then blowing away the husk because you don't want to eat that and popping the grain in your mouth, that would be winnowing. So reaping and threshing and winnowing are all food-related gathering and preparations that would have been seen by the Pharisees as a violation of Sabbath laws. And they weren't crazy for thinking this way. It's not like the Pharisees were running around saying, what kind of crazy rules could we make up to try to be in charge? They were actually trying to be faithful to the Sabbath. As they understood what God expects of the Sabbath, they were trying to enforce, right? In Numbers 15, God tells Moses to stone a man to death who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Seems harsh to us. The Pharisees read that and they're like, okay, we see, we get it. We're going to put a bunch of extra rules around the law of the Sabbath. It says, do no work. We'll add a bunch of extra rules so that we don't get anywhere close to breaking this working rule on the Sabbath. So what are they up to? What are they trying to do? Well, one, they're actually trying to enforce the Sabbath. They're actually trying to be faithful as far as they understand it. But they're also trying to trap him. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to demonstrate that Jesus is not a faithful rabbi, right? That instead he's a transgressor of God's laws, that he should not be esteemed, that he should not be followed. Don't let this charlatan lead you astray. That's their goal. That's what they're thinking. But they're also being burdensome. And this is part of what they don't see. The way that they're applying the law of the Sabbath is not in accordance with God's actual purposes. Rather than viewing the Sabbath as what it was intended to be by God, a day of genuine rest and joyful celebration of the goodness and the mercy of God, a day where the people of God set down their burdens and remember that they depend on the Lord for provision. The Pharisees have instead turned the Sabbath into this burdensome exercise of not being of trying not to break all the minutia of the rules that they, not God, have set before the people. The Sabbath is meant to be about rest and, uh, rest, 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 
Work with me, folks. Rest and refreshment of the soul. I smush those words together, I think. And the Pharisees have made it a burden to the people. They've created this, this environment where the people are heavy laden and they are burdened. Like Jesus was talking about at the end of 11. You who are heavy laden, you who are burdened, come to me. I will give you rest. The kind of rest you are looking for that you're not finding will be found in me. Jesus and his disciples have already had some run-ins about their behavior or their lack of it, right? In chapter 9, we heard about John the Baptist's disciples who came to Jesus and said, Hey, man, how come we're all fasting like good little boys and your guys are just eating it up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What? And Jesus said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Something greater is here, is what he says. He says, the bridegroom is still here. You shouldn't mourn. This isn't a time for mourning and fasting. I'm here. This is a time for feasting. This is a time for celebration. So we've already had this cycle of interactions once before. And this whole idea of Sabbath seems kind of weird to us. We understand that it exists. We understand that God's people in the Old Testament were beholden to it. But for us, it seems weird. We do whatever we want on our off days, right? We mow the lawn. I mow the lawn. We work in the garden. I mow the lawn too much. We can talk about that later. You go for a walk, play games, you watch a movie, you hang out, you have a conversation, you read a book. You just do whatever you want to do on your days off, right? We rest however we want. But this idea of Sabbath was not just, hey, stop working. This was a symbol of their identity as a people. The Sabbath was part of who they were as Hebrews, as Jews, as people of God. Sabbath was one of the things that really set them apart as a different people. The other people worshipped gods. The other people made sacrifices. It was only Israel that had this weird one day a week rest and stop everything. It was part of their identity. When I used to be an orchestral musician, I would go and play in these orchestras all over the place. And it was usually on a weekend. And then I would usually drive home. And this one particular time, I was playing in a little orchestra out in West Texas, and I was going to drive back to the Dallas area where I lived, and I thought, I'm going to grab me a little bite to eat. I'm going to get a delicious chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, because they have delicious chicken sandwiches. So I pulled into the drive-thru, and I pulled up to the little menu board with a little speaker thing, and I sat there, and I waited politely for them to say something, my pleasure for you to be here, <laughs> or something. Nothing. And I wait a good 90 seconds, which you know in fast food terms, that's a long time. And I was like, hello, anybody there? Nothing. I was like, what? And I look in the building and I realize, oh, the lights are off. I look at the parking lot, it's empty. I was like, oh my God, it's Sunday. <laughs> They're not open on Sunday, right? Did anybody, anybody in here just find that out? Anybody just find out that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday? Nobody. We all know that. That's part of their identity. They're closed on Sunday. Israel was closed on Sabbath. You could not do business with an Israelite on the Sabbath. If you wanted to buy something from him, you need to wait or you need to do it earlier because Sabbath day, it's not happening, right? That was part of who they were. And so the Sabbath was meant to be this day where God's people would rest from their labors as God did on the seventh day after creating everything. They were meant to rest and remember the blessing and the provision of God. But instead, the Pharisees turned it into a giant game of 
monopoly that's gone far too long, and everybody's waiting just to land on grandma's park place, and she's got four hotels, and I'm definitely going to lose, right? That's what they had turned this into. So now Jesus is going to respond to them. They've come and they've made this accusation, you're breaking the Sabbath, we caught you. And now Jesus is going to respond. He's going to take them to school. He's going to educate them. And he's going to do it, as he typically does, using the scriptures. He's going to teach them about the Sabbath, showing them what the Sabbath truly is meant for, and more importantly, who has authority over the Sabbath. He's going to teach them from God's word. He's going to teach them from the holy scriptures. He's going to teach them from the history. And then he's going to teach them from the law. And he's going to teach them from the prophets. So first, the history, verses 3 and 4. He, Jesus, said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So Jesus is recounting this historical narrative that they should know well. And he starts off by saying, Have you not read? Now, he doesn't say, have you not heard, because he's making a distinction between the Pharisees and the regular people. The Pharisees would have read the word. They would have had the scrolls. They would have studied God's word and put much of it to memory. God's people would go to synagogue and hear the word. So he says, have you not read? Now, he's being a little sarcastic. He knows that they've read. He's saying, you've read it, but you don't get it. You don't understand what this narrative is teaching you. He knows that they would have read the story. So he's got a little sarcasm in his question. But he's referencing the story of 1 Samuel, chapter 21, where we see David, who's the anointed king. He's not yet been crowned king, but he's been anointed by God as the king who's going to replace Saul. He's fleeing from Saul. Saul, who is the king, is chasing David with murderous intent. And David and his men go into the tabernacle, which has been set up at a place called Nob, temporarily, and he goes in and he lies to the chief priest and says, hey, I'm on a special mission from the king. Super top secret. Can't really tell you about it. Here's the deal. Hungry. Give us the food. And he's like, I don't have any food. The only food I've got are these loaves of bread called the bread of the presence, which were these special loaves that were baked once a week on the Sabbath by the priests. And they would put the new loaves in as this offering to God. They would take the old loaves out and the priests would consume them, be part of their food that they would eat. And David and his men take that bread and they eat it. So, the tricky thing is, and what Jesus is talking about, is that they are not condemned for doing this. God says that bread will be made every week by the priests. It will be replaced by the priests and then they will eat it and nobody else. That's the way this works. Here comes David and his men and they eat the bread and God does not condemn him. The scriptures do not condemn him. The Pharisees do not condemn him. Everyone recognizes that the anointing and the authority that's been placed in David sets aside this rule in this circumstance and that it is somehow acceptable that David has done this. So Jesus' argument is not, hey, look, I've got an example of where the Sabbath was broken so we could break it again. That's not his example. That's not his argument. Jesus' argument is based on authority. David was God's anointed one, and his authority made his actions acceptable to God. So if King David, anointed by God, and his men's hunger somehow make it okay for him to eat the bread of the presence, which has an explicit divine command, only the priests eat this, 
and somehow it's okay, how much more should it be okay that the hunger of Jesus' disciples would allow them to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath and eat it? Because Jesus is starting to make a connection between the authority that the Pharisees already recognize in David and the authority that Jesus has that they do not recognize. So Jesus has now taught them about this Sabbath idea from the history, and now he's going to turn his attention to the law. Verse 5, or, Jesus says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And again, he says, have you not read? He's like, you guys don't get it. You guys are reading the word and not understanding. So what's Jesus talking about? How is it that the priests in the temple are profaning the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is talking about a couple of things. Numbers 28, where we find that the priests are required to make sacrifices on the Sabbath. They have to go get these animals. They have to slaughter them. They have to kill them in a particular way. They have to cleanse themselves in a particular way. They have to offer these sacrifices on the Sabbath. And as we already saw, they're baking bread and swapping it out. They're doing all this work on the Sabbath. But that's not a problem. God has commanded it. So that would have been working according to the rabbinical rules that the Pharisees are trying to follow. Now, Jesus doesn't actually think that the priests are profaning the Sabbath. He knows that they aren't. But he's saying kind of tongue-in-cheek, according to your rules, they are. According to the way you're operating, those priests should be in sin and they should be rebuked every Sabbath. But you find them innocent. God finds them innocent. Why? Because of the authority of God. Because of the authority that he gives why were the priests guiltless? Because God says so. God, the one who created the Sabbath for the good of man, he also declared that the priests should do these things, make the bread, do the sacrifices. So either God commanded his priests to break the Sabbath, or God's will for the priests is caring for the, in caring for the temple is somehow exempt from some of the particulars of Sabbath rest. So does God have priorities? Does God have some things that he wants above others? Think of it like this. Imagine you have two young children. Some of you don't have to imagine. And they're sleeping in the same bedroom in a bunk bed. You got the younger kid on the top bunk, older kid on the bottom bunk. And you've told them, lights are out, stay in bed. That's the rule. If you disobey, you're gonna be in trouble. You're gonna get spanking, time out, whatever it is y'all do, okay? In the middle of the night, the younger child on the top bunk falls out of the bed hits the ground with his noggin before he even wakes up, gets a big whelp on his head, and is screaming, bloody murder. You, as you are waking up, what is your hope for that older child on the bottom bunk? Are you hoping that they will stay in bed and be like, mom and dad said, stay in bed. You better get back in the bed, bro. Ooh, you're going to be in so much trouble. I know, it stinks. It's just hurting. I get it. Get back in the... Or would you want that older child to get out of bed and care for and show mercy to, and be gracious to, and kind to, and love this younger sibling. Well, of course you want the second, right? Now, will some of your kids say, aha, now we can turn on the lights, stay up late, play games, because mom and dad want us to love each other more than they want us to stay in bed. Yes, they will do that, but you're missing the point if that's where your mind goes. Don't do that. I just put that in your mind. I apologize. But the idea being, God wants some things more than he wants others. God wants mercy to be shown rather than just rote sacrifice, which is what he's going to talk about in just a minute. And so Jesus then, after having spoken about David 
and his men going into the, the tabernacle and eating the bread. After talking about the priests making sacrifices and baking the bread, now he's going to say something pretty strong to them. Verse six, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Now for us, we're like, ooh, something greater than the temple. It's probably Jesus. Okay. But for them, whoa, 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 something greater than the temple? The temple is the thing. And Jesus is trying to let them know what's actually happening. He ends the phrase with the sentence with these words, is here. He says is because he wants them to understand it's happening right now. I'm not prophesying about something in the future that will come. Something happening right now. And he says here to show them it's not just some general thing that God is doing in the world. It's happening right here in front of your face. Look at me. It's happening. Something greater than the temple is here. They're bearing witness to something greater than what they currently revere. And we have to remember the temple is not just a place of worship or a place of sacrifice. The temple was the focal point of God's relationship with his people. It was the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the Holy of Holies in the middle where God dwells with his people, where he sits on the mercy seat. The high priest, after much ceremonial cleansing once a year, can enter into the presence of God in this Holy of Holies as Adam and Eve had in the garden. The temple represents everything about the religious beliefs and pursuits of the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying something better then that is here. And the Pharisees would have been astounded and frustrated. What is it that's greater than the temple? Well, it's Jesus himself. Yes, I think we all see, seem to see that when we first read this. But why does he refer to himself as something and not someone? Why does he not say someone better than the temple is here? We get an idea of this from John Chapter 2, where Jesus speaks of his own body as being this temple that will be torn down and then raised back up in three days. Jesus is the true and the better temple. Throughout the scriptures, we see that Jesus is this true and better everything that came from before him. Jesus is the true and the better Adam. Jesus, having passed the test in the garden and then imputes righteousness to the people that come after him where Adam had imputed sin. He's the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to go out and establish a covenant with God's people. He's the true and better Isaac. Jesus was sacrificed by his father and just like Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac showed his love and loyalty to God, God's sacrifice of his own son, Jesus shows his love for us. He's the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him, and uses his power to save them. He's the true and better Moses, who stands between God and his people and mediates God's covenant with them. And now we see, once again, Jesus is the true and better temple. He is where final sacrifice for sin is made, and it is through him that God and man are now reconciled and reunited. Now, God did show great love and mercy to his people by providing the temple and the sacrificial system so that there was this way for sin to be temporarily atoned for 
and for God to come and dwell with his people. But God's love and mercy are far greater shown in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, to come and restore what was broken forever. And this is Jesus' point. This is what he means when he says something greater than the temple is here. What the temple gives you now isn't what I'm going to give you. It isn't as good. What I'm bringing is better. And that's the crux of Jesus' argument. He gives them these two examples, one of David and his men eating the bread, one of the temple priests working and preparing food on the Sabbath. And he's saying, if there are exceptions to the normal rule of the Sabbath, for these lesser things, how much more will there be an exception for me? who was a greater thing, greater than them both. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with claiming that he's greater than David, greater than the temple itself. He's still teaching them, right? He's taught them from the history. He's taught them from the law. Now he'll do it from the prophets. Verse seven. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So where is this quote from? This is Jesus quoting Hosea chapter 6. Jesus used this exact phrase back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jared preached on this back in January. He's wanting the Pharisees to understand God correctly because they don't. They think that the way to nearness with God is regimented obedience. Control your behaviors. Be very concerned with your outward appearance and you will be pleasing to God. But Jesus says, no, show mercy and love and compassion to each other. This is the heart of what God is after. The controversy in our passage here today about the Sabbath is not whether or not that Sabbath should be observed. Jesus is not disputing that. The controversy in this passage is about how it should be obeyed and who determines what obedience is. The Pharisees were in the habit of being burdensome about it. They literally had 39 different categories of behavior that would constitute work on the Sabbath. Don't walk this many steps. Don't skin an animal. Don't light a fire. Don't sew a garment. Don't write more than this many letters. Don't erase more than this many letters. And on and on and on. This fence around the law was built. but they didn't understand. Jesus is teaching them what God truly wants, mercy rather than sacrifice. Now, did God want his people to observe the Sabbath and do no work? Yeah, certainly. But did he want them to observe the Sabbath in such a way that you couldn't have your friends over for dinner and worship God together? Because the distance from their home to your home was too far for them to walk without breaking the Pharisees' rules. So they need to stay home over there and I have to stay home over here. Did God want them to observe the Sabbath in such a way that they would question in their minds whether or not they could do good to one another in, in, in any way without fear of breaking one of these 39 ways that the scribes and Pharisees said was unlawful on the day of rest? Certainly not. The Pharisees had lost sight of the purpose of the Sabbath, to rest, to worship God. It was never meant to be a day where you fretted all day long about getting in trouble for taking too many steps or lighting a fire. God is not interested in those empty acts of obedience and sacrifice. He's interested in mercy. He's interested in compassion. King David speaks clearly of this reality in Psalm 51. 
where he says, for you, God, will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. If that's what you wanted, God, I would sacrifice all day. But you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David sees and understands what God's heart is. Does God require sacrifices? He does. But do the people understand what those sacrifices are for, what they're meant to point to? They don't. So you might say then, what was the point of all the sacrifice in the Old Testament in the first place? If God doesn't want a burnt sacrifice, why does he absolutely command it? Well, what do all of those sacrifices point to? What are the sacrifices meant to do to show the people, you can't fix this problem? Look at all of the death that's been required to atone for your sins, and yet more death must come because this isn't going to get the job done. Your sin is too great. Something greater must come than these sacrifices. They point forward to the greatest act of mercy, the sending of Jesus, Jesus' death on a cross, Jesus' righteous and spotless and blameless and perfect life. That's what the sacrifices point forward to. That's why God requires them, so that the people will see their great need for something eternal, something permanent. And that's what God is providing through this merciful act of sending his son. So Jesus' point is that God's people are to be known by their love and their compassion, their mercy, rather than their strict adherence to the rules. God wants us to love him and to love others. So here, now Jesus has corrected and instructed them in these three different ways from the scriptures because they've misunderstood it. And that's what we need to see. That's what you and I need to see, church. You and I can do what the Pharisees have done, misunderstand the Bible. We can misunderstand the purposes of God and therefore misunderstand him in doing so. We can make the same mistake that they're making, trying to live our lives by what not to do, trying to earn God's mercy through righteous living rather than realizing that the mercy that he gives in Christ isn't earned. It's a free gift. And so that those of us who've received this mercy are now free to fill our lives with things that are pleasing to God out of joy and out of love for this gracious and merciful God. But the Pharisees and us Sometimes get the cause and the effect mixed up. It's easy for us to slip into this false thinking. If I do good stuff, then God will be pleased with me. That God will give me mercy if I do stuff. Rather than he gives me mercy. And so in loving honor of that free gift, I do stuff. I try to honor and obey him because of what he's done. Not to earn what he gives. When I was seven or eight years old, my family and I went to a basketball game, which if you know the Brower clan is weird because we're not sportsy. But this was no regular basketball game. This was the Harlem Globetrotters. If you don't know who that is, it's kind of a fun, non-actual competitive basketball team who are actually really great basketball players, but their focus is fun and silly and trick shots and jokes, and they literally bring a second team with them that's their opposing team who just play into the act. It's literally a show where cool basketball things are done. And it was real fun. And the day we went to see the Harlem Globetrotters was literally on my birthday. The day. My birthday. Basketball. <laughs> it was great. 
And I had a great time. And I think at some point during the thing, and maybe this didn't happen, but my memory says that it did, that the announcer said really quickly, and a happy birthday to Carl Brower, seven years old today. Anyway, and, you know, and then I thought, this was all about me. The Harlem Globetrotters came to town for my birthday. How did my dad hook that up? Wow. And I literally believed that for like a year and a half. Yeah, I don't know about what you want to do for your birthday. Harlem Globetrotters came to town for my birthday. And I believed inversely what was true. I believed because of my birthday, they came to town. The truth is, they came to town when it happened to be my birthday, right? In the similar way, it's easy for us to fall into this flip-floppy way of thinking. This false belief that God's mercy can be earned through proper behavior. We can be wrapped up in trying to avoid God's wrath, avoid hell. But that just demonstrates that we've misunderstood the scriptures. And we misunderstood the God that those scriptures reveal. God's people are meant to be a people who understand that that mercy is freely given. And for those who trust in Christ, God's wrath toward their sin that we're so fearful of has already been poured out somewhere else upon Jesus. And so we don't have anything to earn. So it's not I obey God and then God responds by rewarding me with his mercy, but rather God gives mercy to those that he chooses and then they respond with faithful yet imperfect obedience. So Jesus is telling these Pharisees, if you understood that, if you did understand God's heart about this issue of mercy versus sacrifice correctly, then you wouldn't have even tried to condemn my disciples for eating the grain in the first place. But then Jesus makes his final statement in our passage, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, who is the Son of Man? Most of us say, oh, it's Jesus. Right, and that's true because that's a title Jesus takes for himself most often. And this title is used a bunch of times in the Old Testament, but Jesus' use of it traces its roots back to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel where the Son of Man is depicted as the coming Messiah. So when Jesus says Son of Man in reference to himself, he's saying Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the Redeemer, the one who's coming to fix your problem is here. And that's the crux of his argument, his own authority. Jesus is declaring that he has sovereignty over the Sabbath. Why? Because he is the Savior. He is the one now, that's not to say that somehow the disciples were actually guilty, but Jesus steps in and goes, hey, Messiah, right? Oh, oh, their, oh, their guilt is gone. They weren't guilty because he declared it to be so. Jesus is the one who establishes in the first place what the law of the Sabbath even means. He decides what's lawful on the Sabbath, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, Jesus himself so in the previous verse, Jesus declares that his disciples are innocent. They're not innocent because they were hungry, like David and his men. They aren't even innocent because of the Pharisees' legalistic approach to the Sabbath. Jesus declares their innocence based on his authority. He declares them to be guiltless. This mercy is at the very heart of the gospel. This reality that you and I are sinners in need of grace, in need of mercy. 
You and I have transgressed against God. You and I do not measure up to the expectation and the requirements that God sets. He says, in order to be in my presence, you must be perfect. You must be without sin. You must be blameless and spotless and righteous if you want to be with me. That's why Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Because they were righteous until sin came. And when it came, you can no longer be with me. And if you sin, there is a penalty. There is a cost. And that's, that cost is death. And God says, you have no way to fix this problem. And so he says, I will fix the problem for you. God says, I will send someone who will fix this, who will come and live that life that you should have lived, you being perfect and spotless and righteous that you aren't. I will send someone who will, who will be perfect, who will be sinless, who will be spotless. And that righteousness that they earn can be yours. And the penalty that you owe for your sin, death, will be taken out on this same one. His death will count for you. Jesus says, I will fix this problem. I have come. My Father has sent me. My death, my life, my resurrection will pay. And when his righteousness is given to a sinner, then God declares them to be innocent, to be guiltless, just as Jesus declares his disciples to be guiltless. They aren't guiltless because of something that they've done or something that the Pharisees are doing or saying. They are guiltless because the God of the universe declares it to be so. In the same way, you and I can be counted as righteous by God because of what Christ has done, because of his authority. And that's who we hope to be here at Parkway. We desire to be a people who understand these things correctly, who do not busy ourselves with all the outward appearances or the burden of a million little rules that we try to obey that God never even gave us. We desire to be a people who are actually compassionate and kind and merciful to one another, who show genuine love to one another because we know that what we've been shown is an abundantly gracious and merciful God who has sent his son. We want to be constantly reminding one another of these truths, that we are sinners in need of a savior and by God's grace we have one. We desire to be a church that is marked by a deep and infectious love for Christ and for one another because of who he is and because of what he has done. Now, this was an outrageous claim for the Pharisees to hear. Jesus is saying that the law of the Sabbath, tracing back to Genesis 2, when God rested from all the work that he had done in creation, this day that God blessed and made holy, this was God's day, the Lord's day, that was set apart. And he declared that his people should take this one day out of the week and do no work, using the time instead to be refreshed in the Lord and to worship him. God made everything, and he established the Sabbath. It is God who is Lord over the Sabbath. And the Pharisees know that very well. So for Jesus to say, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, would be to say, I am Lord over the Sabbath, and therefore I am God. To hear Jesus claiming divinity like this would have enraged these men. 
But this is the final teaching that he has for them on this subject at this, in this passage. And he tells them that the reason for their accusation against his disciples is wrong because the Lord of the Sabbath is here. Something greater than your temple, something greater than your experience, something greater than the things you currently revere is here. The thing you've been waiting for is here and you don't see it. To hear Jesus claiming this would have been astounding. It's on his authority that he declares his disciples innocent, and it's on that same authority that he can declare you innocent if your hope is in him. And if you have this, if you have this already, if this is true for you, if you've already put your hope in Christ, you trust in him, let me encourage you to remember what Jesus is teaching here today. We have a God of mercy who wants his people to be merciful. He has done all that needs to be done for salvation. So don't misunderstand him and create unnecessary burdens, trying to earn what has already been given. We've got to be cautious. We don't build fences around God's law like the Pharisees have done. Does God want you to read your Bible? Yes, of course he does. Does he prescribe for you exactly what that looks like? how often you should read and how much you should read each time you do. He does not. You have freedom. Does he want you to come to him in prayer? Yes. Does he prescribe exactly how that should look? No, he says just be constant and consistent. Don't pray out loud in the streets like the Pharisees do, trying to build yourself up. Does he want you to live in the world but not of it? Yes. Does that mean Christians have to only watch particular kinds of movies, read particular kinds of books, listen to particular kinds of music? No, you have freedom. Does he want you to raise your children in the knowledge and the instruction of the Lord? Yes, of course. Does he prescribe exactly what that will look like and what your education for your children should be? He does not. You have freedom. And this is what's important, brothers and sisters. It's not only you that have these freedoms, so do your fellow believers. So when you wrestle with the issues of Christian freedom like these, as you come to conclusions about how much of your Bible you will read and how often you will pray and what movies you'll watch and what books you'll read and what music you listen to and how you train and educate your children and a thousand other things where you have freedom, be cautious that you do not impose your own conclusions upon your brothers and sisters in Christ, but instead you show mercy and you give grace so that they may not be bound by someone else's conscience, namely your own. Leave them that freedom that God has given them. We have a God has given us everything that we need in order to be obedient and to be faithful in his word. We must be cautious. We do not add to it or take away from it. Now, if you are not a believer in Christ, let me encourage you, wait no longer. The salvation and the freedom that is offered to you in Christ has no price tag. There's nothing that you must do. You don't need to clean yourself up to come to him. You don't need to be a better person for Jesus to count you worthy. 
He only asks that you come to him, that you admit you cannot save yourself, that sin is a problem that you cannot fix, that you understand that he said, I will fix it, and that the means by which he has offered this problem-fixing solution, this glorious Savior, is Jesus. Come to him, trust in him, receive the mercy that he gives. He is not just Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of all. You have nothing to lose but your guilt and shame. You have everything to gain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are good, that you are indeed merciful, and that's what you want from your people. You want us to love the way you have loved. You want us to confess that we have no solution to our own problem and that you have been gracious and merciful to give to us all that is required to satisfy what you require. That Jesus has come, that he's lived this perfect life, earning that righteousness that you require of us, and that he gives that to us freely. And that the death that is required for our sin has been put on him, that he has died so that we might live. And that he did not stay dead, that he rose from the grave defeating sin and death forever, demonstrating that those who are in him will follow in him. We get to share in that life that he lived. We get to share in the death that he died for us, and we will share in his resurrection if our hope is in him. So, Lord, I pray that we as a church would embrace and embody this reality, that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior, that we have been shown great mercy and that we have been commanded to give that mercy to one another, to be gracious, to be kind, to be patient, to truly love one another as you have loved us. And we find that to be wildly difficult. And so we pray that by your spirit, you'll strengthen us, help us to be faithful men and women. Lord, I pray that Parkway would be a place where the name of Jesus is lifted high, that our sins are crushed, they're drugged into the light and they are put to death, by the power of your spirit that you would make us a people who look like your son. We thank you for your word and we thank you for all of your grace and your mercy to us. We love you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.